Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. All right, to the Table Dallas. We're glad that you're with us. Whether you're live here in beautiful Mill Street House, hey, can we get like three cheers for it's under three digits today? So it's beautiful here up in Old Town Louisville, or hopefully it's beautiful wherever you are around the world as you're listening via the podcast. As our series Havel, Life Under the Sun, our study of Kohelet, which is the Hebrew name for the book that we're probably most familiar with by the name of Ecclesiastes, which is a Greek word, um, the Greek translation of Kohelet. And um, so we're now in our third week, our third week, and I know some of you have been in and out, it's been the holiday weekend and travel time, and um, hopefully in the next couple of weeks we'll get um, more regular, everybody back more regularly, so at least um, as we work our way through the 12 weeks of our study. When I ask a question like this, you'll have a, a background. But essentially what I want us to know and what I want to hear from you as we begin. So we've been two weeks in it. How would you describe Kohelet, the quester, the main character in the story? How would you characterize or describe his quest for meaning up to this point? How would you describe his quest for meaning, or um, yeah, his quest for meaning up until this point. Kind of fruitless. Mm-hmm. Yet dramatic. <laughs> fruitless, <laughs> yet dramatic. I like that. Yeah, fruitless, yet dramatic. Good. I think well, for me, it comes back to the, the a constant theme of control. He's trying to take control of things, to subdue things. And isn't it that isn't it interesting that some of the reference here, uh, some of the references we've been dealing with, uh, allude us and send us back to the garden? And you know, here at the table, we talk about the original sin being really this idea that I can control things, I can be and control my own destiny. So we see that. Okay, good. What else? Yeah. Exhausted. Yeah. Because at this point, it's not like he's at the beginning saying, "Well, I'm going to search for meeting and maybe I'll try all these things." He's already been there and done that and made his assessment based on his exhaustive. Yeah. Not just exhaustive, which I like. Would you say exhausted as well? You get that sense that he's tired. Yeah. Good. That's great. I like that. Exhaustive and exhausted. Yeah. I like that. All right. Yeah, I like that. Exasperate. I'm done with that. Okay. What else? Anybody else? Emphasizing faith work. Yeah. So it's him reconciling the faith worship quality of life with pursuit, whether it's his, his faith or pleasure. Would you add anything about um, his emotional state? I think you hit on that a little bit, but would you add anything about what's his emotional state at this point? <coughs> Cynical. Cynical? Really depressed. At this moment? Depressed? Yeah. Interesting. Sorry about that. The lid is off. <laughs> Thanks for telling me. You caught that, right? Mr. Obvious. Yeah. So what else? His emotional state. How else would you, might you describe it? So a certain amount of mental fatigue. Unfulfilled or hopeless. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And so this this is kind of um, the process. One of the things I, one of the things I love about taking three months, essentially three full months, to go through a book is we're we're working our way through the book, and you'll start to see how some of these things build up. Um, I know that we started out the first week with this idea that, like, if we were going to put a, uh, a voiceover to the text, it would sound a lot like Eeyore. Like, everything's worthless. <laughs> I get up in the morning and I can't go back to sleep, right? So we're going to get some more of that because, remember, throughout the book, he's working his way through and he's going to test Essentially, right, everything that humans do in our existence to try to find meaning outside of 
not outside of God per se, but outside of a right relationship with God. All right? And so that's going to continue. So as we've been doing each week, rather than using a single translation, because Hebrew, particularly Hebrew wisdom literature, um, you can have uh, two different translations or a couple of different translations that sound extremely different from each other because we're using words like uh, Havel, which is one of our key words in here, and it can be translated as meaningless, it can be vanity, it can be, there's a variety of other words, vapor, mist. And so what we've been doing is we put together, each week I put together what's called a, what? Miscellany. Miscellany, which we get the word miscellaneous <coughs> from, right? So we're taking bits and pieces. So basically I'm doing a gut level translation of the Hebrew. Like, kind of straightforward, you know, based on a lot of input from multiple translations. And I do that all for you. Thank you. To make it easier. All right. So, what I'd like for somebody to do is, so today we're dealing with Kohela chapter 2. And we're doing the second half, chapter 12, 2, verses 12 through 26. So, if somebody would read that into, uh, what do they call it? Read it into the record, if you will. Especially for those who are listening by podcast. Having exhausted wisdom, I bent my mind toward madness. I practiced ignorance and sat with idiots. Though it's true that the wise can see where they're going and fools cannot, I was still compelled to ask, does it help to see where you're going when everyone ends up six feet under? No. This, too, is vague. Death levels all differences. Everyone dies, and no one remembers the wise any more than they remember the fools. Time forgets everyone. Seeing this, I became bitter. I despised life's troubles. I hated how life teased me again and again with the promise of an impossible satisfaction. I hated, especially, the thought of leaving my wealth to anyone who came after me, to people who hadn't earned it and wouldn't appreciate it. Idiots will inherit everything I've fought for. They'll decide what happens to everything I've worked for. Just the thought of it turned my stomach and made me despair. I've spent all my days working and planning with patience and wisdom but some slacker will inherit success and waste my fortune? Utterly useless, vapor, utility. What do we get for all our trouble in the heat of the sun? We get lives filled with stress and worry. We get lives filled with loss and heartache. At night, our heads spin, our nerves jangle, and we can't sleep. This, too, is pointless. There's nothing better for humans than to eat, drink, and enjoy their hard work. I saw that this is from God's hand. Who can eat and find enjoyment otherwise? Only God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to those who please God. But for the rebellious, God gives the task of hoarding and accumulating so they can give it all to those who please God. This, too, is pointless, like chasing after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. So I took a few liberties there. You like that? I took a few liberties there to kind of give you the sense, at least my sense, of the, the kind of trappings that go with some of those Hebrew words. All right? So I, I'm not trying to tell you that this is like a word-for-word translation. I'm trying to get at what I think is the core of what he's trying to say in a way that I think we can mostly identify with, right? You know, I, no one's going to translate, um, and, and I notice some of you are, are reading from the text, your, your biblical hard copy, real translations. No one's going to translate it as idiots and words like that. I'm trying to, uh, I probably should have maybe not used the word idiots, it's, but... It's, it's inflection. It's inflection, like idiots. Anyway, so um, as we do each week, so as you're listening, remember, this is wisdom literature. And one of the things that wisdom literature is meant to cause us to do is to think about how it makes us feel. 
Like it's supposed to connect with us on a core level. So I say, what grabs your attention in this text? What, what questions or thoughts arise as you reflect on what you've read or what you've heard? What stands out to you? What connects with you? And you went, oh. Well, the whole text is everything is useless and pointless and why do we even bother until that one sentence, only God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to them who please God. And you're like, what? Yeah, it's almost like, where did that come from? It's like he screeched on the brakes and turned around. I love that. There's God. Then he went back to the yeah, they went back to Eeyore. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, those are the kinds of things we're meant to see, right? You're like, it's this, it's this, it's this, and then all of a sudden it's like, what? This this is from the hand of God? Like, okay, good. What else? I feel like he's trying to convince himself. I mean, he has all these questions, but then like, he always gains a statement. He's like, but you have this, that's okay. Yeah, this mindset, but then you go right back into it. I like it. He's trying to convince himself. He's like, he's trying to be like that, remember my story from the first week about the guy I played golf with? who every time he was put in the sand trap, as he's riding up, he would be saying, I'm an excellent sand player. I'm an excellent sand player. Trying to convince himself that when he gets in there, he, and he's, so you get that sense, right? I, if I say it enough times, and try enough things, surely one of them is gonna give me what I'm looking for. Yeah, good, what else? It seems to me that his wealth, and his money, and his soon to be, loss of his wealth and money maybe he's an older man and the fact that he's going to leave that for somebody that hasn't worked as hard as he has seems to be really heavily on his mind yeah he really doesn't like that right good what else yeah somebody's going to get all my effort it almost gets the sense like well, I didn't get any enjoyment, but this person who comes behind me who's the idiot who didn't work for it, the assumption is they're going to enjoy it, right? He's assuming a lot. Isn't that interesting? He's yeah, assuming he's, assuming that, assuming he's assuming that everybody besides him is enjoying it. Is, well, and that they're, that they're not worthy. That he's Ooh. worthy, but nobody else would be yeah. worthy. That's good. It makes me wonder if he started off with scratch. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, we're going to hit on that in a couple then, minutes, but yeah. And that's a good question. It's like, yeah, where did, what was his base point? Like, where did he start? Like, because he, he makes it sound like, I've done this all me, myself. Me, yeah, me, 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 me. Yeah, and we're going we're gonna to investigate that in a minute when we look at a couple pieces. I think of for me, that me, me, me speaks volumes when he says, having exhausted all the wisdom, I bet my mind's worth nothing. So he's, he's relying on his own wisdom. And so everything that he has, and that's why he's so tired because he hasn't connected to where it comes from. Right, and remember when we talked last week, the whole focus of last week was I'm going to get there through wisdom. Wisdom's going to give me what I'm looking for in searching and meaning in life. And he's like, oh, the conclusion last week in verse 11 was that didn't give me anything. So that's why 12 picks up with having tried wisdom. For those of you who weren't here last week, like for having tried wisdom and exhausting wisdom, I'm going to sit with a bunch of idiots, with mad people. Like and see if that's any better. Good. Ignorance. All right. So, anything else? Somebody else. Yeah, it was yeah. an ignorance is bliss kind of a, yeah. an approach. Yeah. So, looking at the couple of things in the text, remember now. So, we always start with that kind of a question. I'll give you a few textual questions here, and then we get to what we call our ICCG, which is okay. So, uh, individually, as a community of faith, as a city, and how the gospel, how all of this speaks, to, how the gospel speaks to all of this. We'll get to that in a minute, but. Textually, in verses 12 through 16, that first section I have for you there, the question says that it's better to be a wise person than a fool, but essentially he wonders in the end, is one any better than the other? Because death, as he says, awaits both, right? And it will erase the memory of both wise people and stupid people, right? Doesn't matter either way. Um, so why do you think that the preacher thinks there is no value in being wise over being foolish. Is it really just because they, you all end up in the same place, six feet under? Or is there some other reason, do you think, that the preacher here, the quester, thinks there's no value in, in being wise? Like, we talk about that all the time, right? The scripture's full of, be wise, pay attention. Yet he says, no difference. 
it seems like he's not really convinced that it makes a difference, like, to, like, for other people. Like, maybe, it, like, it says time forgets everyone, so that makes me think that he must not feel like people value his wisdom, or that it has any kind of effect on which is an interesting statement because remember, if we think this is Solomon or someone, I, I would argue it's either it's a combination, but likely someone in Solomon's inner circle who's been with him and writing in the Solomonic tradition, right? People from all over the world, the other parts of Scripture tell us people from all over the world came to Israel to sit at the feet of, of Solomon or the quester, the wise man, to get wisdom thinking he's it, and yet his conclusion is, I don't think that's any better than being an ignorant. How would you feel if you were the one who went for him for wisdom, and then you read that, what would you think? Your shirt was worthless. Yeah. Why did I do that? I'm not sure he really believes that, because I, he has to recognize the quality of life wisdom has brought him. He has to recognize. Well, I think I think he does because on the like just our inherent Western kind of parsing out wisdom, uh, we think through this idea that like there's clearly a value to wisdom. He's hitting a, a bigger part that didn't fill the gap that he was trying to put stuff in. Yeah, it still left him with emptiness. Yes. So I think when he says that wisdom, wisdom and madness are the same, is neither one of those has any. They don't touch what I'm missing. I also don't think he thinks that they're capable of actually understanding the wisdom that he has to offer. Ooh. Interesting. Well, he, like, yeah, it, it's so far above them. That he thinks that it's Falling just... Falling on deaf ears. Correct. Yeah. And it's just, so it's pointless because they're not going to get it anyway because right. they're all idiots. I have a question. Mm -hmm. Is this writing during the point that Solomon kind of wasn't listening to God anymore and he was doing what he wanted to do. And so that's, the, that's, a, that's a challenge to answer in that um, it, a lot of it depends upon whether or not you believe that Solomon was the one who penned these words. Um, and those who, who actually think, okay, it was Solomon sitting down writing these words. Um, in his later life, he writes these things. But like if you read some of his other writings, you don't get this feel, right? This total despair feel. So... Um, it, most most scholarship today believes it's someone who was close to him, who watched everything that he did through his life and is kind of writing on his behalf going, this is what it was like for him. So it's not per se that it's like I sat down at the end of my life, but someone who is penning for him in that tradition, that's how I view it, is writing and saying, look at all the things he tried and these are the things that he basically said. Right? So definitely accumulation of a life of trying everything. Because there's, there's no way we can't connect it to Solomon because A, you know, his name is mentioned, but B, from what we know of the rest of his life, the wives and the, the wine and the, you know, all the things that he indulged in, it makes sense, right? That he would, you know, that these things are written and been like, yeah, he tried these things. So yeah. it's almost like an autobiography. A little, but yeah. So, biography, not autobiography. Yeah, bi yeah, bi yeah, biographical. Like it is, is bi. <laughs> You're gonna get me in trouble. Um, <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> no, um, wisdom literature is tricky. It's really tricky. I mean, it is biographical, but I think that there are um, often points that are that are emphasized and and being driven maybe beyond. You know, to, to try to capture the attention. It's almost beyond, like, wisdom, because uh, the tension here is pretty clear, right? We know that these things don't make us happy, and yet we still try to do it. So um, I only say it's, a, it's biographical, but I think it's like a biographical plus a little, how would you say it? Fiction. Embellishment. Embellishment. Like we've seen in, uh, like in Jonah, which is another example of wisdom literature, where we say, yeah, these things happen, but there was some embellishment to make the point. Now, when you hear embellishment, don't hear like unnecessarily untrue. It's the style of writing, like it's allegorical, times, right? The fish Maybe exaggeration. Do again. The fish got bigger. Yeah, the fish got bigger. <laughs> it's the fish story. Yeah. It was so, a minnow. Yeah. Anything else there? I've never noticed before. Um, 
verse 17 to 21, it's the first time I noticed like he, he felt like he switched to anger, like his, his voice was angry more than hopeless. And it kind of struck me as being similar to the stages of grief, like he was facing mortality and processing um, denial, anger, bargaining. That was bargaining. Um, so like he's going through all of those stages of facing mortality and saying, what was my life worth? Not discounting what had happened, but like as I'm facing the end, looking back on a life that I lived, what was it for? What, what, what do I have to show for it now? Yeah. Not saying that wasn't important, but now it's still meaningless to me as I'm facing death. There is definitely big overtone, as we said last week, overtones of lament. The classic biblical lament story, which is, you know, this idea of complaint, complaint, bring your complaint to God. But in the end, a resolution that, oh, yes, God does, you know, God does in the end provide all the meaning I need. So, yes, you're picking up on some of that that lament language that we'll see. And it's interesting that uh, the question tells us in verse 17, as you said beautifully, that once he discovered that the wise are no better off in the end than the foolish, how does he describe it? What was the, I translated it. It's the word that was, same Hebrew word that was used to describe the water after Moses struck the rock. Vapor? The, the, um, Bitterness, Mara, this idea of bitterness. So he said he became bitter, right? Is that how I translated it for you? Yeah. Right? He became bitter to what? Life's troubles. Life's Sorry? troubles. Life's troubles. Yeah, but bitter to the point of? Did I translate? Did I not translate that? I became bitter. I despised life's struggles. Hey, that's what I was looking for. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, he was dis he despised life to the point where he hated it, right? Especially how life teased him. Isn't that an interesting idea? Like life is teasing me. Well, so it was for the impossible satisfaction. So that that emptiness that never got filled. Yeah. What do you think he means by that knowledge? That wisdom and foolishness are the same. Um, what do you think he means by that? That it caused him to become bitter, like the waters of Mara, to the point of eating how life teased him. <coughs> What's he communicating? The foolish are pursuing happiness that they'll never get. The wise are pursuing happiness that they'll never get. He hated that. He hated that. Yeah. But neither one of them would. It, it yeah. probably didn't seem fair to him. Mm. Yeah, but if we're comparing how it was the bitterness of what the Moses's, you know, water that he did, Moses went about it wrong. You know, he did it out of anger or whatever. He did not do it the way God intended. And so, if he's comparing it to that, he's either through wisdom or idiocy. Neither of those are necessarily the way God intended for him to go about it. Which is what we've been saying about Solomon all along, right? Yeah. It's not that these approaches are wrong, it's divorced from God or separated from God in a right relationship that are not going to break. I didn't break it. iPads are vapor. iPads are vapor. Yes, see, that's, that's why I put this beautiful cover on it because I tend to do that. My old one had like a little loop I could hold on to. This one is So yeah, anything else? Well the idea of being teased, you think you think about Solomon's life here, you know, these great accomplishments, but then you read this judge. So then Beyonce's like, gee, is life a roller coaster? She's like, what's worth it? Tease me, I these highs, and then I'm like back to the bottom. You tease me something good. I'm back here at the bottom. What do you think about that statement? I mean it's can you identify with that statement? This idea that life that you hate how life teases us with pleasures that ultimately don't satisfy? Are you comfortable with that statement? Yes. It's really you were you were brave enough to say that. <laughs> so to me, some of the stuff in like up at sixteen is like it's death that's really hanging over his head like a sword. Uh -huh. He's like, no matter what I do. 
I'm not going to escape death. Yeah. Just like the fools, just like anybody, I'm still going to die no matter what I do. And, and because he doesn't have a resurrection. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Is that the goal, though, to escape death? Um, Is that his ultimate death, uh, goal, I guess? Um, or is he just acknowledging that? I mean, I think it touches on what Holly was saying earlier. It's you get to the you, as we get older and our life gets like our we're getting close to the end of our life expectancy. You start thinking things like about like death and the future. We're gonna get to that in the next couple of verses about what you're leaving to whom. I mean, some of you know my mom's in the hospital today, or she has been over the weekend. Um, she's she's got problems with her kidneys and other things. But it's so interesting as she as she thinks about that how her brain changed and all the messages were so you need to make sure that this gets to so and so and this goes to here and and you can do whatever you want with 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 the money that's left I'm like, you know kind of thing but you start thinking differently as you approach later in life so I think I don't know if he's trying to deny death but I definitely think it's a later in life kind of part of his life that he's starting to think about it. Because notice what he says um, in verses 18 to 23, right? What he hates especially is the thought of leaving his wealth, number one, to what? People who didn't earn it. And number two, people who wouldn't appreciate it. So the question I have here is, if this is indeed Solomon or someone writing... I think, inside Solomon's close inner circle, isn't there a certain irony um, or maybe a sense of hypocrisy in his statement here? And if so, why do you conclude that? Is there a sense of, uh, of irony or hypocrisy here? I mean, he's privileged, right? Yeah. I mean, he's the son of a king. He inherited his position. He inherited at least the sea of his wealth at the height of the kingdom. Yeah. I mean, you asked before, is he a self-made man? Did you start from scratch? I mean, it's the age-old, you know. Chicken or egg. Yeah, it's like, no, you're privileged. You started from a position of privilege, which I find ironic that his response is like, well, I'm going to do all of this, and that person's going to get it, and they don't even know what it took to get it and all of this. I'm like, well, neither did you. <laughs> In a lot of ways, now obviously Solomon expanded it more than this, but when you have that kind of privilege, like you're a king, you have unlimited resources, you not everybody can try everything he did, right? That takes resources to try to sit with fools, to try the women, to try the food, travel, money, everything we're going to see, right? You takes privilege, and yet he writes, the thing I hate most is my son and sons and children, and you know, a lot of them, are going to not understand and not appreciate what I have. There's a certain irony to that, isn't it? Does it feel hypocritical? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it feels very true to how we all are. Yes. We have a much clearer lens when it comes to other people than ourselves. In his mind, that's the only story that is. In, in his mind, he yeah. worked and he did all this stuff, and nobody lived his life the way he lived. And his experience was, you know, distinct to him. And so he feels like his birthright was, you know, with him. was something he had Is there another way we could read it? Bill? I just want to know what's wrong with me because I'm like going, okay. What do I care once I'm dead? It doesn't mean anything anyway. Except, you know, going back to your statement, Luther, at the very beginning, the whole thing is about the illusion of control. So here we go. Not only do I want to try to control it in life, I want to control it in my death as well. And I think he thinks it's going to be squandered. So I think if he felt like things would be moving in the same trajectory that he had, as if that was the only way, then... You know, I think he would have a different feeling. I think he thinks that as soon as he's gone, it's just going to be squandered. I'm thinking as I this is not what I was direction I was heading, but as I'm reading and I'm listening to you guys, I'm thinking maybe he makes a statement like this because he realizes that the people who follow him are going to be exactly like he was. Mm-hmm. 
Meaning, yes, yeah. I didn't appreciate it. I didn't realize what I had. You, you, you kind of tracking with me there? It's like, I didn't do it. So I, I bet everybody who comes behind me is going to be exactly the same way I was. Yeah, stop wasting time on this. Or maybe he's forgotten how he was. It's possible. But so there's a couple of ways to, to read that. Now quickly, one last textual piece and then we'll jump to the ICCG. So in verses 20, and this is important, 24 to 26, the sage, the quester finally draws God into the picture, right? And tells us that joy, enjoyment, fulfillment, however you want to say it, ultimately comes as a gift to us from God's hand. So how does having a God-centered view of life answer the self-centered view of what the sage has been wrestling with so far. In other words, how does he find an answer through the connection of a recognition that everything has come from God? How does that change his perspective, or does it? Because Holly, you hit on this before. Does it feel like it changed him? Briefly. Briefly. I wonder if part of the wisdom knowledge there is um, I grew up in a very poor house. Like, we were better off than some, but, like, we had a garden not because it was a fun thing to do. We had a garden so we had food. So um, I wonder if some of the wisdom there is what it does. Itself. I didn't see in all the things he tried. He didn't try starting from zero, giving it all away and starting over. Um, I know that my perspective, like, yeah, I, I don't have, I didn't, we didn't have the money to try out a bunch of things. So I had to have a very narrow focus, and I knew, like, when you grow up in a garden, you know that's a gift from God. Like, the fact that the land just produces food is a miracle. Um, not having been soaked in that, you don't get a sense of, like, I wonder if part of his angst is he, he came from too much. Um, he didn't start with his own stuff. He didn't have to rely on anybody else. Um, it was always there. So turning and looking and saying, yeah, okay, it was always there, but it was basically God gave this to my dad, mm. and I get the benefits of it. So, so finally a recognition that these are gifts right. that were given to humanity, all of humanity, to enjoy in right relationship with God. Yeah. So, yeah. The, so like you said, yes, it, it, it's connected for a minute, but there's a certain sense where, like, when you finish the text, like, okay, we just finished the text, do you feel better now, Holly, that you got to the bottom with that little piece inserted? Like, does it give you hope that maybe somewhere in the future of the book he's going to come to? A little bit of hope. You know, at least he's able to recognize that God's the one who gives this. And then his next sentence that you translated is, but for the rebellious, God gives the task of hoarding and accumulating so they can give it all to those who please God. So there's a little bit of, you know, they're worse off than those who please God and turn to him for wisdom and joy. So maybe he really knows that. He's just too depressed to, to cling to it. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, because there's definitely. I mean, that's it. He finally makes. Well, not that the other ones aren't true, but this statement right there, right? So, um, God, it's a gift from God. God's the one who gives knowledge, joy, and the key there is to those who please Him. And he's like, for the rest of us, because he's arguing. I think he's lumping himself in at a time for some time in his life. He was one of the ones who wasn't pleasing God. Right. Right. And all I'm doing is connecting those things. Because ultimately, he's saying, everything belongs to God. It's going back to God. It's going to the ones who please God. So it's pointless to try to pursue it apart from God. It's actually a well-written, like, connective. Like, it's like he came full circle to the end, and he's like, yeah. But he's still going to try other things. <laughs> we still have more. This isn't the end of the, this the end of more, books, right? <laughs> So let's talk about a little bit about um, ourselves, so individually, for our ICCG. So um, there's a number of things here. Um, Paul, uh, Paul, Solomon talks about sitting with, with madness. You know, I, I descended into madness and sitting with fools and all that. What are some of the things that, in our modern world, that we are tempted, pleasure-wise, to pursue in life thinking that it's going to give us meaning and satisfaction. 
I mean, we're not beyond the quester, are we? <laughs> so what are some of the things that we try to fill in? Everything. I mean, if anything, we, we are more like the quester, or society itself is more like the quester since, at least in you know, America, to where we have so much more access uh, to things that could distract us from truly, you know, having God be the focus and stuff. So whether that's food or staying busy or accumulation of things or, you know, working lots and lots, and, you know, we, we definitely have those opportunities probably even more now these days to just try and fulfill what can't be fulfilled without God. Because we're, we're acknowledging that we who are sitting here come from privilege. Different levels of privilege, but we, we come from privilege, right? right? So let's let's say I mean we're gonna get to the city in a moment, but but individually, what are some of the other things that that we attempt to put in place, thinking that they're gonna give us meaning and satisfaction? And maybe the next step, what does it reveal to us about what really gives meaning in life? We're building wealth, building something you say, I'm gonna have this money, give it to my kids, and they will remember me by what I gave them. I mean, the flashback says you're going to give it to them and spend it or whatever to do it. There is a certain sense of that, isn't it, Curtis? Like, part of my responsibility is is I'm going to pursue wealth so that I can, so that I can pass it on to the next generation, right? right? Yeah. And I think to pass it on to the next generation so they don't have to work as hard. Yeah. And I think that, I guess when I was thinking about this passage, it's that. I've worked really hard. Yeah, I started off with things, but what did I do with that? I worked to expand it, but have I passed on that work ethic that says you start with this, but you keep moving towards and not stop? And so I think he's thinking about I did maybe I didn't instill that work ethic, or I didn't instill that passion to use those gifts and talents the way you're supposed to. I think you're you're dead on because his concern was. They're not going to, they don't appreciate it, and they don't know what to do with it. And he's one song that his kids didn't. Yeah, and we know that, right? You know, we know that his, his kids were a disaster. Well, they recognize it was too late. At this point, it's too late to change the way that they were raised to have that kind of thought process. And he's not changing his plan to give it to them. He didn't decide to give it all away, is what you're saying. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's still part of the plan. It's like, Completely opposite of what he's complaining about. He's still going to do it. I mean, I, I think ironically, whether it was him trying to pursue the law or him trying to pursue pleasure, they both had the ultimate root of him wanting to assert control. Mm -hmm. And I think the mistake that the Israelites made and the misconception that the apostles had initially was. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant was about giving them control. And that's not what the Covenant's about. It's about redemption. And those are two very different things. I mean, all of us who are parents know we can do a lot of things that we think are right, but our kids are their own individual persons, right? And there's a lot of factors that are going to affect what direction they go, right? That's true. I think it has a lot to do with the children. Essentially concludes those are gifts from God. 
and yet he seems to be in this battle, right, between um, pleasure as vain and enjoying the things that God has given us in life. And so there seems to be a, a balance that needs to be, is the word struck? Yeah. Balance that needs to be struck. His, cri- allow it? his criteria had yeah. to change. Because okay. in the beginning, he's not wrong if he's assessing the, the value of our life that, oh great, we both all died. If you were an idiot, if you were brilliant, if you had tons of money, if you were a pauper, everybody's in the ground. So yes, he's not wrong if you're assessing the value of it by that definitive ending. You know, I mean, then that's why he's really upset. He's like, I'm really brilliant and I'm and I'm wise and yes, this is all actually true. So if he changes the focus of his criteria mm. of what value what is valued, then even having food as a blessing, having the ability to work and make things and do things for others has value and there's there's joy to be and fulfillment within that if he changes the lens of what he's, you know, yeah. focusing I, on. Yeah, I agree. And I think what what we're hearing here, and this is where I want us to kind of focus in on the community piece. I, I think Solomon was missing that community yeah. that could speak into his, his life about, well, how do you balance? How do you navigate? Balance is a really bad word, mm-hmm. in my opinion. It's like, how do you navigate enjoying pleasures and the pursuit? I mean, work is good. Bible number anywhere says that having money is a bad thing. Like you know, obviously how we go about it. So how does it? How would have a community helped him? And maybe put it into today. How do we in a community help each other navigate the road between enjoying and pursuing the things that we're meant to do? Like you were talking about, John. It's like yeah, I work hard. And I want to pass that ethic on. How do we help each other in that? I mean, what ways does a community, would it have helped Solomon, and how does it help us? Well, it's not about having a community. It's about having the right community. Okay. Um, because they are going to be influenced on you in one way or the other. Okay. So gotcha. if it's the right community, they can speak into your life and call you out on ways you're not fully embracing you know, God's gifts or correctly embracing, for lack of a better word, uh, appreciation of God's gifts. Um, because if it's the wrong path, they can easily push you into further away. Yeah, so. Well, I think for him and <clears throat> his position, it would be really hard for him to have a community because most people around him are yep. just are going to be, I don't mean afraid as in like their life is in, at risk, but like you don't challenge your boss. Right. Generally, yeah. I mean, yeah. sometimes He's a you king, do, but right. you know, right? I mean, you just can't. So I think going back to the right community at his level, he needed a community that could speak to him more directly. Yeah, if I consider David and having a prophet come to him and tell him where he went wrong, mm-hmm. I don't remember any stories about no, Solomon that's having, a having a prophet mm-hmm. come and tell him. I bet there were prophets saying he was doing some wrong stuff. But it, that doesn't show up in any of the stories. So even that direct voice from God. You need to extend accountability group. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're just in a community of common believers, mm-hmm. that at times you're the you God's using you to be a blessing to someone else, yeah. and sometimes you need to just accept that you're in a position of need that somebody God's using someone else to be a blessing to you. And it doesn't always mean tangible financial things. It could just be a source of encouragement or comfort. You know, if you have all your needs met financially, there, there still can be value in ministering to others that has nothing to do with you know, spending a penny. I think all of the complaints he has, too, are like, I... God is here, and if I'm walking forward, God gives you joys and pleasures and experiences. But he kept turning and fully going toward wisdom, or turning and going fully towards life's pleasures, and turning, like, I'll go off on this branch and see if there's fulfillment here. Um, Community should be moving toward God together, and you'll experience some of those things as you go, but if you turn off, you lose. You'll be like, oh wait, they're not. There's no one here with me. 
Yeah, so then you come back and recenter, but I that's think good. that's what communities should keep you moving like toward the one thing that isn't vapor God. It makes me think about, so in my family, we have a family reunion every two years, and the one thing that's kind of the tenet of that is that we recount. So we tell the story from the beginning, because my great-grandfather and then my grandmother and her 11 siblings were people of faith, and so they, they talk about how we have what we have, where it came from, what we were taught as a family who were believers, and they recount that so that our kids don't inherit something and don't understand the value of what they give. And it's not that I gave it to you, it's that God blessed us to have it. It blessed my great-grandfather to have it, that gave it to my grandmother, to my mother, to me, and now I'm giving it to you. So that your job is to value that and to always do better with it than what we did. That's always the end thing we start with this. You always do better than the generation you had before you. That's great. I got a question, David. Uh -huh. <clears throat> Just the wisdom itself. I mean, wasn't Solomon recognized as the most wise guy on quote, the earth? Well, wisdom itself requires that you listen to other people. So I'm under the, I mean, Surely, in the other side of that, if he was the wisest, uh, it's kind of hard to listen to anybody. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I kind of feel for the guy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh, and I think there's a, as we think about um, our city, in other words, the people that we engage in, we, we know that we fall prey to pursuing these things, and we... We, at our core, want to be and live in right relationship with God, and yet we struggle with navigating it. So take out people, take out the relationship, right relationship with God, and think about people in our city who are living, who are trying all of these things. My question to you is, um, how do we extend sympathy? In other words, how do we, how can we speak into the life of a city Whose everything about the city, and you understand what I'm saying about the city, the culture is do do achieve achieve money money money. How do we how do we how do we how are we empathetic with that and speak into it without coming across as judgmental? Because that will shut that will shut the door right immediately. It's like oh you're an idiot for doing this. You know this isn't gonna work right. So there has to be a winsomeness. You like that word? That's a good word. Winsomeness to it. So how can we, how do we empathize, but then maybe show a different approach? How do we do that? Is it possible? I think an easy way is to just start out at the point of, do you feel fulfilled? Like it, how's that work for yeah like is that i mean is your life great like are you are you loving it or are you feeling a little empty because i think we all feel empty in some forms and i think that's an easy relatable thing of okay this is your path how is that working for you like do you feel great because if you feel great maybe you don't need any changes but i guess you don't um okay so that's great so let's agree that that's a good place to start now what the response then is, what if, well, you, if you're doing good things, is it an obligation you feel you have to do, or is it something you're doing out of the goodness of your heart? Right, so you're going at motivation. Okay. I think there's there's a hint here um, in the way that which in which Solomon writes. So we have the ability to tell our story, like because we've all done it, right? We can go, yeah, I've been down that path. Yeah. I, I can empathize with you. Like, I was working 50 hours, 60 hours a week. I was, you know, not paying this bill so I could do this. Or I was, whatever the scenario is. All we, here's my point. I think all we can do is speak from our story. Right? So it is a demonstration of, this is how I'm now living my life since I recognize what right relationship with it is with God. But the way to do it without judgment, without that barrier that's going to come up is yeah. let me tell you my story. Right? Because th there's nothing they can argue. I mean, they might say, that works for you. Great. But it sets the seed in their heart, in their mind 
that there is something and it can be better because you're like me. I mean, usually, like, I'm not usually speaking to billionaire moguls. It's not like Jerry Jones is going to sit down and listen to me when I say, hey, you got billions and you've had everything, right? But you just don't look like you're happy at all. Yeah. Now, granted, it's because you haven't won a Super Bowl in 30 years. But we'll hold There's always hope. You see, but the people whose lives we speak into typically mirrors in a lot of ways, right? So we can say, yeah, I've, I've been down that road. I mean, Peter gave the first sermon in Acts, and he, his sermon is exactly what you just described, in that he just recounted <coughs> their story, historical experience with Jesus. Yeah. He didn't give a proposition. It was like, look, this is what we've experienced. And what we're, what we're talking about here is the G in our ICCG. Right? It's, we're telling the story of how the gospel changed us. This is how the story, the narrative of scripture has changed my life. And here, you know, here's how I live now because of the relationship I have with God. I still enjoy the pleasures of life because God gave it to us. I still work hard because God said that's part of what we have, we've been put on earth here to do. But I do so now because I understand where the meaning comes from, which is relationship, right relationship. We, we have the story, right? Right relationship with God, each other, and the world around us. When you divorce it from that, it will constantly feel like vapor. Like you're, like vapor, like you're trying to, and that's what I love vapor, it's like I'm reaching for it, hoping that it's there, and as soon as you reach for vapor, what, you pull your hand back and what do you got? And I might leave out the word right if I'm talking to a non-believer, because it might come across as judgment. Good point. Great, great observation. My relationship with, yeah, that's great. I, you know what? Yeah. I've been, I've been, I've been school. <laughs> but you're right, you're, you are correct. You know, because, I, there's a part of me as a pastor wants to go, there is a right, but I understand what you're saying. If like, if you want to have the conversation, as soon as you say, mine's right and yours is wrong, you're going to have a barrier, I got you. I understand what you're saying. Mike. I think, too, we have to put in the effort, the extra effort, to make a connection with those we normally don't connect with. Invite, you know, your next-door neighbor over for something light and easy and non, no pressure type of thing and start building little tiny connections uh, before even really get into your story. That's right. Yeah, yeah you're not going to just walk up to someone you don't know. Poor, right. you know, that you exactly. build. Yeah. All right, excellent work. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. And remember, we're saving a seat for you at the table.